0: an insight that's hard to understand or hard to process. It could be complex data where it's a very intricate kind of analysis we've done and maybe the data is unfamiliar to the audience. And so in those situations, we would want to invest extra time to tell the data story. Often when we have information that is counterintuitive, maybe it's bad information, like not bad information, but hey, that program that you rolled out for the last six months, I've analyzed it and it was not as successful as we'd hoped.
1: what's up everybody welcome to the artists of data science podcast the only self-development podcast for data scientists you're going to learn from and be inspired by the people ideas and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others i also host open office hours you can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash A D S O H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five star review. Our guest today believes in the power of data and its ability to elevate and transform what we can achieve, both individually. And collectively. And that doesn't matter if you're optimizing marketing initiatives, streamlining production costs, or enhancing sales performance. He believes there are no limits to what we can do with data. In his nearly two decades long career, he's worked in enterprise analytics as an analyst, consultant, manager, and evangelist. Through this experience, he's gained deep insight into what is needed to be successful with data, both from a strategic and a tactical perspective. Perspective. He's got a demonstrated ability to distill down complex concepts into content that resonates with a broader audience and has had his work shared at some of the largest industry conferences around the globe. Today, he's here to talk to us about the importance of effective data storytelling. Over the course of this interview, he'll equip us with the knowledge we need to make sure our good insights don't go to waste. Because when the right narrative and visuals are paired with a compelling insight, our data communications can inspire change and drive value. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a man who firmly believes the ability to tell stories with data is an essential skill in our growing data economy. The author of Effective Data Storytelling, Brent dykes brent thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on to the show really appreciate you being here
0: yeah thanks harpreet thanks for having me on the show wow what a what a introduction i I hope i can live up to the uh, setup you gave me so
1: oh absolutely i know i know you will i've uh, thoroughly enjoyed going through your book here as you can see i've just got notes that needs to get transferred into my cast in soon but i really really enjoyed this book and i can't wait to uh, dig into it and share some of the insights that you've got in this book with the audience. But before we do that, why don't we get to, le- get to know you a little bit? Talk to us a bit about where you grew up and what it was like there.
0: Yeah, I, I'm the son of immigrants. So my, my father is actually uh, from New Zealand. My mother's Australian and they immigrated to Canada, had me there. And so I, when I was an infant, they lived there for a couple of years. Then they went to England and then they went back to New Zealand. And then when I was eight, I actually moved to, back to Canada for good this time. And grew up in Victoria and North Delta. That's on the west coast of Canada, British Columbia. So that's kind of where I grew up. In the last almost twenty years, I've lived at it in Utah.
1: Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I love Vancouver. Vancouver's an amazing place, and specifically North Delta. I've got family that lives there, so I've been going to uh, to North Delta since I was a uh, a young boy. I was actually in Delta just uh, beginning of the month in in beginning oh, wow. of September twenty twenty one here. Uh, so that's that's awesome to hear. That's where you're from. All right, cool. So, growing up in North Delta, that is definitely an uh, awesome place to grow up. A lot of a lot of good beer in Vancouver. I don't know if you're a fan of uh, craft beers or not, but uh, a lot a lot of good stuff out there that I that I enjoy. But so, growing up in in Vancouver, what did you think your future would look like?
0: Growing up in the '80s, I thought I was going to be a computer programmer. I was convinced I was going to be a computer programmer. However, obviously, life took me a different direction. So.
1: In in a sense, I mean, it's not necessarily computer programmer, but you're still involved in the technology field and and mm-hmm. still involved with you know data in a sense. So, is life really different than than what you imagined it might be, or or is it kind of along? No, I
0: lines? mean, the, I I always did well in my math classes, and then when I was in college, I was debating between marketing and accounting. I was getting good grades in accounting, and a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, definitely go that route, you know, get get your accounting degree, and then you're set for life once you become partner. I have a brother who's an accountant. Uh, but I decided, you know what, I, I'm just not as passionate about counting other people's money as maybe doing the creative side of marketing. However, you know, I think when I eventually when I was thinking of doing an MBA, I was like, you know what, I still miss the numbers, you know, and and I didn't really get as much exposure to the numbers on the marketing side, at least marketing communications. And so when I did my MBA, I was able to get back into the numbers and the quantitative side. And then my first job out of my MBA program was actually at an enterprise analytics solution called Omniture. And then I went into consulting from there and And that's really where I was able to, you know, we were working with marketers on their analytics, but I could also, you know, obviously do analysis and kind of flex those muscles that I wasn't getting when I was just in pure marketing role.
1: And so at what point was it that you realized that that you can actually do a better job communicating Data when you use stories was this just a culmination of all the different interests that you had up to, up until that point? Well, like, what was that light bulb moment where you are like, okay, like yeah, you know, stories.
0: So funny story was I was really interested in PowerPoint. You know, I was I was really good with PowerPoint. Started a blog called PowerPoint Ninja and did like a hundred blog posts there. It's still up. Uh, I haven't contributed to it in like probably ten years, but but that kind of you know that kind of flexed those. Presentation muscles and stuff. But as a consultant, as a manager, I saw a lot of consultants struggling with communicating insights, you know, and even clients struggling to communicate insights. And that's where I kind of, those two worlds kind of came together where I could take my analytics background with the presentation side and say, you know, look, there, there's got to be a better way to, to present and share insights. And, and that's where I stumbled across data storytelling. And I actually pitched it. The company that I was working for, Omniture, was acquired by Adobe in 2009. And in like 2014, we're coming up to 2014. And I was like, I, I want to do a session like a breakout session at our customer conference on data storytelling. And so I pitched it to the the event organizers, and they thought it was a great idea. Ended up being a really popular session. and And that just kind of opened my eyes to, wow, there's not only do I love this and I'm super passionate about it, but other people are really interested in it as well. And so from that point on, I just started, you know, presenting on it a lot and developing my ideas and putting my ideas into application. And, and yeah, and then I got to a point in 2016 that I decided, you know what, I need to, I need to start working on a book. I, I can't just keep this in my brain. I need to get it out there. And so that's, and then it took me three years to write the book. So it was, it was, it was a long process of, you know, writing and, and going through that. And yeah, no, it was quite the journey, but I'm excited by, you know, and today now I'm, I've kind of all, all, all chips in. I'm, I'm basically uh, gone solo and and this is what I do full time. So this is, you know, in terms of consulting and stuff that I'm focused on data storytelling.
1: So before we get into communicating or talking or informing, like what is there subtle difference? Is there a glaring difference? Talk to us about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot, you know, in the analytics space, you know, I've worked in analytics a long time, and I think one of the things we're trying to do a lot is just in providing information, right? We're, we're trying to inform people so they can make better decisions. And there's actually a, a quote, a great quote, and I'll just kind of summarize it, but it was by a, a journalist by the name of Sidney J. Harris. And he basically summarized, information is about giving out and communication is about getting through. And, and for me, that really resonated with me. I associate storytelling more with communication in the sense that, you know, we're really trying to get our insight shared out to people and so that they can understand it like we do. You know, whereas I think like reporting and, and informing is more like, okay, we're pushing information at people and, and then it's up for them to, the, to then just, you know, make sense of it. And we're not really communicating an in, in insight necessarily. And i think that's that's where communication and storytelling come together obviously there's certain advantages to storytelling i mean we've we've we're storytelling creatures we you know as human beings that's part of our defining characteristics that we really seek out and try and make sense of the world through the narratives that we form in our mind you know and we're we're trying to make sense of the world around us and the the magic of data storytelling is you know, often when we just, if you just give somebody a fact, they may not know what to do with it. They may not, it may not fit into their worldview or how they are currently uh, thinking about, you know, whatever the the topic is. And so by pairing that fact or that insight with a narrative, we're we're helping to explain it. And we're also help, we're giving that individual something that they can then, oh, okay, fully grasp and integrate into their, into their knowledge. So it's, it's very powerful that way, and you know. I, I, so, I basically to answer your question, I think storytelling, communicating, you know, one and the same. You know, or or basically, storytelling is a form of communication that's very effective.
1: So let's get into it now. Let's get into it to, to data storytelling. And you, very early on in the book, you talk about the elements of a data story. So, so what what are the elements of the data story, and and how how is it that they interact together to to you know create something that's compelling that can Drive action or change.
0: Yeah, I mean, I no surprise if I told somebody, okay, well, data storytelling is comprised of three key elements. So you have data, narrative, and visuals, and, and probably everybody like, ah, oh, yeah, that's a no brainer, Brent. But what I do in my book and what I've done in articles is I I have kind of like a Venn diagram where I have each circle is for each of those elements, and then I look at the intersections of those because I think it helps us to understand. The power of data storytelling. So, if we take just the, the the data bubble and we say, "Hey, we're going to share some information with somebody. Here's a spreadsheet. Here's a data table. You know, here you go. You know, and and then I hand that to you. and And there's a good chance you may not have the full context like I do. There's a good chance you may not come to the same conclusions. You may interpret it differently that data. And so, what do we do when we when we pair the data with the narrative? And that intersection of narrative and and data is really about explaining. You know, we're we're adding the narrative to kind of make sure that people understand the data that we're sharing, the insights that we're sharing. We hold their hand through the numbers, we guide them, we give them the context, we give them the meaning behind those numbers. And so that's that's a really critical intersection of those two bubbles. And then if I look at the other bubble, the visual bubble and how that connects with the data, again, going back to sharing a data table. You know, again, there may be patterns, there may be anomalies in that data, there may, you know, trends that are hidden in the rows and columns of the of that data table. And so it's only when we visualize that data that we can all of a sudden see, oh, we can start to make connections, we can start to see things and see things in the numbers. And so the combination of visuals with data is really about enlightening the audience to things that they wouldn't see otherwise without the visuals. And then the last two bubbles intersect interesting so the narrative and the visuals because as human beings we love storytelling we love visual storytelling i mean that's that's why you know probably many of us were up late last night binge watching the new you know netflix or hulu shows because we can't get enough of you know this connection this this combination of visuals and narrative it's really engaging for us and so that all kind of you know brings together if we can get the right data we combine it with the right narrative and the right visuals, all of a sudden we have something that's very powerful, you know, something that actually can change how we view the world, how we behave, you know, can really have a huge impact. And so that, that's the power of data storytelling in those three elements
1: binge watching is true that is what i was doing last night i was watching i think i watched like three episodes of this netflix show called squid games it was quite oh a, yeah i've heard a lot yeah, about that yeah it was quite quite interesting and, and you know you know you talk about you talk about how data storytelling is kind of meant to, to enlighten our, our audience and you know speaking of enlightenment i like that you uh included some uh teachings from aristotle in in your in your book uh you know I'm a big fan of philosophy, I love philosophy and Aristotle is is definitely one of my favorites. So I'm wondering what can Aristotle teach us about persuasion and storytelling?
0: Yeah, no, it's it's funny when I started looking at Aristotle I was like, "Oh man, he was onto something here." You know, and 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 I think there's the, you know, there's the the common things that we associate with with his with um the the three appeals that he talks about. So there's ethos, pathos and logos. And so ethos, just for people who don't know, ethos is really the speaker's credibility. And so if we think of data storytelling, that's really important that we have credibility ourselves. You know, we've done due diligence on the data. We've, we've done due diligence on the data. We, you know, we care about the numbers and we, you know, we're going to inspire people to trust us in our stories. And then there's the pathos, which is the, mute, the emotional appeal. That's where the narrative comes in. You know, emotion is really tied to narrative. And then the logos, obviously, that's that's the logical appeal. That's what we do all day with the data and the insights that we share. Now, there's actually two other appeals that don't get as much recognition, but I think they're also equally important to uh, data storytelling and being persuasive with numbers, and that's telos. And so that's the purpose in which we're communicating our, our, our information. And so I, what I like to say a lot about data storytelling is you it's not like dumping a bunch of different insights. No, we, we're going to have a central insight. We're going to focus our attention. You know, our story is going to be focused on one central insight. And so that becomes our, our purpose. You know, we want to fix this customer service process, or we want to fix how we market to our customers, or whatever it is that we're analyzed and we have an insight. And then the last appeal that, that Aristotle kind of highlighted was Kairos. And that's really the opportune moment. And a lot of the times, when we're telling data stories, you know, we may have a very good data story, a very powerful insight, but maybe something like COVID happens, and then all of a sudden, you know what? That's not the the right time to share this insight because everybody's focused on something else. And so, you know, finding that opportune moment is also a key part of of storytelling. Data story that's talking to something that is, you know, of the, you know, at that moment the company's very focused on, then you've got something that's going to be super. Well received and it's going to be super powerful, so absolutely Aristotle and all of his persuasive appeals are very relevant to data
1: storytelling and in the you mentioned you know you mentioned logos in there now is logos I'm guessing that that equates kind of to to logic ish in, in a sense, but like why is it that most of our decisions aren't actually based on logic and 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 if most of our decisions aren't based on logic, then what does that mean for us as storytellers? Why is that something that we should, you know, have in the back of our mind?
0: Yeah, no, it's it's something, you know, when I started out into analytics in, in the beginning of my career, I thought, you know, if I do really good analysis, I come with all the data and facts and I present that to a decision maker, they're going to be able to make the logical, well-reasoned decision and and pursue that. And, you know, coming out of college, I didn't really know how human beings actually work maybe as well. I mean, yeah, you know, you have your group projects and stuff in school, but, you know, you thought, well, you know, that's that they're, they're just students, you know, in, in, in the professional world, you know, people base their decisions on logic and reason. And, and then I quickly discovered, no, you know, a lot of decision-making is emotional and, and, you know, and that's something that even neuroscientists have found that actually, emotion plays a big decision it plays a big part in decision making and there's actually um, I talk about this in the book but there is a guy by the name of Antonio Damasio and he's a USC neuroscientist and he was working with patients that basically had damage to their emotional centers of their brain so basically they had no emotion they they operated without any kind of emotional you know, in, in part of their decision-making and the interesting observation that he made when he was talking to these individuals is he would try and set up like a lunch appointment with, with them. And then, and then, and he'd say, okay, what, you know, where do you want to go on Tuesday for lunch? And and these, he'd watch these patients go back and forth, you know, trying to make a decision on where to go to have lunch. They, you know, they'd kind of say, well, the sushi place, I think they have the special I like on Tuesdays, but then again, The Italian place is actually easier for parking. But then again, I really like the servers at the, you know, and they're like going back and forth. So a decision that you and I, you know, if we said, hey, where do you want to have dinner in in Vancouver? We could probably come to a decision in in a a minute or two, whereas these individuals would spend 20, 30 minutes trying to come up with a a decision. And, And so that really highlighted to this professor that a lot of our decision making is based on emotion. And, and, and sometimes that emotion is flawed. If you've read the book by um, uh, Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, you know, he talks about system one and system two. System one has a lot of, and, and, and people who haven't read the book, system one is basically our intuition. You know, it's our unconscious processing of information. And it, it really has a, a sway over us, you know, and that's really the emotional side of us that, you know, it really influences how we make snap decisions and how we come to conclusions because it's, again, it's trying to make sense of all the stimuli that's coming into it and and then provide the system too, which is our analytical brain with, you know, kind of a, a recommendation. So it's it's interesting. The human mind is, you know, yeah. we, we think it's like, it works like clockwork and it's, you know, it's all logical. No, it's, there's a lot of, you know, we have human bias, we have, you know, cognitive bias, we have logical fallacies and things that we do as human yeah. beings. So.
1: And you cover a lot of them in your book, Effective Data Storytelling, which I encourage all of you guys to pick up like a lot, like ev- like everything that I enjoy reading on my spare time, like all this behavioral science and logical fallacies and uh, biases and things like that, you packed them into this book. And it just, you know, before I used to think storytelling is, you know, what is storytelling is something that artists do. It's something that, you know, you either can do or you can't do. But no, it's it's a learned trait. If you understand how humans react to information and how humans um, process information. So uh, definitely recommend you guys checking out this book. And by the way, if you are looking for a place to eat in Vancouver, might I suggest meet M-E-E-T in Yaletown. I was hanging out with George Ferrican there at the beginning of the month. They took really, really good care of us at meets, so Just shout out to them. So I'm glad we talked a little bit about System 1 and System 2 because it kind of cues me up for, for the next question here. And that's, you know, if, if most of our decisions are very emotional, then how is it that we can make better decisions in spite of this emotional nature that we have?
0: Yeah, I mean, in spite of So I think one of the things that is important is to read these books. like you know, Daniel Kahneman's, and there's, I have other books that I've read, Predictively Irrational, the, the name of the author is escaping me now. So all of those kind of books, and, and I think what's really important, you know, because there's, there's two factors here in, in terms of how this plays out. There's our own biases and our own emotions and our fallacies and stuff. So we need to manage that from our own perspective, you know, being aware of, Maybe when we might have a cognitive bias, you know, maybe we do have confirmation bias, you know, when we're doing our analysis, we're, we're trying to prove that we were right. And, you know, and and so we're, you know, being self-aware, I think is really important. Can we completely remove all of our biases? No, no, we can't, but we can manage them. We can try and mitigate them as much as possible. So that's one half of the coin. The other half of the coin is, looking at our audience, you know, and how can we help them, they're going to have certain biases, they're going to have certain, you know, flawed reasoning that they're going to use. And and so often, the the great thing about, you know, visualizing our data stories is that, you know, when we use charts and graphs, a lot of times, it really helps the information to be really clear for the audience. Because one thing that can happen is as people, you know, they're they're they have something called motivated reasoning, right, where they're, they're kind of they have maybe they hear a fact that that doesn't agree with their viewpoint and they're going to struggle with accepting that but if we put that information into a chart and it becomes very clear it's it's much harder for those individuals to misinterpret the data or even kind of fight against the data that maybe they don't like and you know and that's a common thing we we don't like numbers that that conflict with our viewpoint. You know, we're going to we're going to be much more and, and here's the it's a double standard. Cuz information that we don't like, we're going to be much more on guard, much more analytical, much more skeptical. Whereas it when we get some data point that that reaffirms our opinion, we don't even check the source. We don't, you know, it's like, "Oh, I see, I knew it. I was right." and we don't even verify anything. So it's almost like a, you know, it's like an open door on one side for information that we like. And then, you know, and then there's all these like barriers and obstacles that we put up for information we don't like. And so, you know, we can get screwed on either way, you know, like when we, when we don't, you know, have an open mind and are open to new information that maybe we don't like to hear, but then also we, you know, we should also be verifying information that, that maybe does validate our opinion, but, but, you know, what about the source? Where's this coming from? Is there any bias in, in the information?
1: Can you just for, for anyone listening, that's not kind of aware of that term already motivated reasoning. What is it that, 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 you know, how, how would you define that? What does that mean?
0: Yeah. So, so it's when we have a viewpoint on something and we hear some conflicting data. So basically our system one kicks in and says, Oh, don't worry about that. You know, it, it basically rationalizes our position. And so then what happens is there might be an initial kind of reaction like oh I don't want to hear that you know looks, you know there's I have an opinion on a on a, a political view or something like that and I get some data that conflicts with my political opinion what happens is the the brain will basically rationalize that information and actually you get like endorphins to kick in where we we get almost like this positive reinforcement, like no, no, you're okay, you know, like that, you know, that 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 data is wrong, or I'm sure it's you know it's it's questionable, or or you know you're right, and and this is all happening unconsciously, so we don't even you know we're not mentally like analytically thinking, it's all just system one, this this unconscious part of our brain that's that's trying to rationalize and and make us feel okay. So that's why they call it motivated reasoning because we we have a position already. And when we get this conflicting data, it's almost like our brain smooths it all over. And it's our coping mechanism. And, and the actually, and the interesting thing is, is that when neuroscientists looked at how we receive a, you know, if you have a strong opinion on something, and you get a, you know, a conflicting data point that conflicts with your viewpoint, the human mind, when they scanned it, the same reaction we have to that Factor, figure that we don't like is the same as if we were in the wild and we ran into a bear a predator. That same kind of reaction of, of you know, kind of like it, it, something's going to cause us physical harm. The same reaction in our body occurs when we get data or facts that, that we don't like. And so we're, you know, we're very defensive and put on guard by new information we don't like.
1: And so this is where the combination of narrative and, and visuals helps kind of get through that, right? It helps us kind of cut the motivated reasoning so we we can no longer hide from the truth.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's 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 one tactic that can get through. Obviously, it's not always going to work. You know, even mm-hmm. if we tell a really good story, you know, people can be very entrenched in their positions, but it may be the only way to get through that combination of narrative and visuals to kind of explain a different behavior. And and some of the research that I found, you know, that was one of the, you know, some of the few things that would get through, you know, and is it a silver bullet? No, it's not going to work every time, but it may be our best shot at when we have information that's new and, and maybe not come, you know, like we're going to the, to a, you know, a team and saying, you know what, that campaign you just rolled out, it's not going so good. You know, and let us let me walk you through the numbers and show you. That's not where they're going to want to hear, and so they're going to push back on that. But but again, our only shot at maybe getting through to them is with a narrative that has visuals to kind of support our points.
1: So I guess what are the differences in in the ways that facts and stories activate our brains? You know, you mentioned how we've got System One, System Two going on. That's kind of kind of our instinctual and and System One would be that instinctual way that we react to new data. System Two is like, okay, when well, we have to pause and think and kind of like let me, let me let me analyze that. But I guess, what are some other differences in the ways that you know facts and stories that activate our, our brain?
0: Yeah, like so. If I look here at, at our book, in my book. So it's a, if anybody has the book, it's on page sixty nine. I go through how to react to stories and fiction differently, and so. You know, one of the things, (laughs) one of the things that we're going to, our brains are really going to fight against, you know, new data, you know, we're going to, we're going to try and not accept new facts. And so what, one of the key things, some of the the benefits of stories is stories, basically when they were looking at the scans of the brain, when people would share just facts and figures, there are a couple of regions of the brain that would light up and they were just associated. Yeah just associated with processing language. However, when somebody told a story, what they they saw was other regions of the brain would light up, and and that is because the audience would experience what the storyteller is sharing with them. And so you you engage more of the human mind when you're sharing stories. The other thing is, in, in other research, they found, they did a study where they they had noticed that the brain waves or the brain patterns of the listener and the storyteller actually started to align. And so there's some there's a great Ted talk I think his name is Uri Anand and basically he talks about his research into this where there's a there's a neural coupling they talk about, you know, between the the listener and the storyteller. And and so we can form a very different kind of connection with our audience when we're telling a story than if we're just sharing facts and figures. And then the other, there was some research by a, a researcher by the name of Paul Zak. And he he looked at how people responded to narrative stories as opposed to facts. And he found that there is more um, elevated levels of uh, cortisol and oxytocin. And so cortisol is kind of our stress hormone. And that what that does is it it, it gets the attention of the audience. So when we hear a story, we're, we're you know, wondering where the story will go, what's going to happen next. And so our, our attention and this cortisol levels go up as we're listening to a story. And then also there's an elevated um, levels of oxytocin, which is our love hormone, but it's also we're more willing to do things for people. So it's, it's almost like we make our, our insights more actionable. By just telling a story around it, because people are going to be more open to accepting and and also running with with an insight. And 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 there's even examples of where psychologists have looked at how people respond to to narratives in in the sense that they we almost go into a trance-like state when we're hearing a story. And we're less likely to nitpick on the details of a story as, as we would with you know just straight facts. And so. As we go into this almost like hypnotic state, listening to a story, it, these are reasons why, why. Why would we not leverage these? Not not to manipulate people, or you know. But there's, you know, as I talk about in my book, there's there's almost like this expressway. You know, it's like the the carpool lane in the brain. You know, and that's where the the narrative goes. Why would we want to get congested in the the slow you know lanes where you know, get all the the traffic back backed up as the brain's trying to process information if we can go in that express lane and get our ideas quickly to the people in a way that they're they're very open to and, and actually the brain system 1 actually wants to hear stories why would we not leverage that
1: so i think we're perfectly set up now we've got we got a bit of the brain science going on what's going on in in you know your audience's minds as you're communicating your stories we talked about the importance of data why narrative is important, but we haven't really talked about what a data story actually is yet. So let's get into that now. So what is a data story? It's like, isn't it just the same as a dashboard with visuals or am I missing something here?
0: Yeah, no, I think there's some characteristics of of things that, that you know, kind of separate a, a data story from, from just a dashboard or a report. One, so I basically, in my book, I talk about six key elements. Um, so one is obviously a data story has a foundation in data. We're not just creating, you know, some kind of narrative and then sprinkling in a, a few uh, data points to kind of back us up. No, we're we're actually doing analysis. We've we've found insights and now we're building on that foundation of data. As I mentioned earlier, another key element is you got to have a main point. And, and and if you think about a data story, it's got to have a destination. Where are you taking people? You know, it's not just a an assortment of kind of like Here's here's oh, here's something interesting and here's something interesting and here's something interesting. no, it's there's a main insight. Obviously, there could be supporting details to kind of help us understand that, but there's a a main insight that we're sharing with the audience and And a lot of the communications that we get, you know, like the, the most that we can get out of a dashboard is really observations. you know we can make observations with a dashboard. And maybe those observations then lead to an insight later on as we do deeper analysis into the the problem or opportunity. But when we talk about data stories, at the core of a data story is an insight. We're not just, if all we have is observations and no insight, you don't have a data story in my mind. A third point about a data story is it's explanatory in focus. So, you know, if we contrast that with a descriptive approach, which often, you know, reports and dashboards, they're describing the data, what's happening, you know, it's providing a summary of what's going on. Not re- more focused on the what rather than the why. And I think a data story really focuses on the why. Its goal is to really explain to the audience, hey, we have a problem here in our in our, you know, with one of our processes in our manufacturing plant. And we're going to walk you through why it's a problem. And all of the you know all of the information you need to understand why it is a problem, and, and then hopefully you know what are we going to do about it. You know, and again, that's kind of a differentiating factor for for data stories. And then a fourth key thing about that that is unique to data stories is they have this linear sequence. You know, it's it's not just again a random assortment of of, of data or observations or insights. We are taking you step by step through this process, and and that's what stories do. You know, they're a, a series of events. You know, and and things that happen. A, a causal relationship goes through them. And the same thing with with our data stories. We're stepping people through this this connection. So that's the fourth point. The fifth point is we can just like a normal story. You know, if you think of film or or books. You know, there's a lot of things that we can borrow from the fictional world to include in data stories. And so you may think, well, we don't have characters like a story. Well, are you analyzing customer data? Are you analyzing employee data? You have, you have a characters. You have, you know, you're you're doing this analysis of your employees. So you definitely have characters. And then we we can mimic some of these other, you know, obviously with a story, before you get into a story, there's a setting and there's, you know, background information. The same thing happens with a data story. We're establishing the status quo. This is what we typically would expect to see. And then, boom, we saw this happen. You know, This metric shot up or this metric went down. And then that launches us into a story. And so we can borrow a lot of elements from you know, traditional storytelling and bring those over into the, the data story as well. And then the last element is, are the visual elements, you know, and Mark Twain, I, I have a quote in my book where he's, he's, he basically was telling writers, like, you know, rather than putting the fat lady on this, on the, on the stage, you, you, you know, bring her on the stage and let her scream, you know? And, and I think the way I apply that to data storytelling is, you know, you could say, yeah, our revenues went up 50%. Okay. That's great. Show me show me that, you know, show me that pattern, show me how the, the revenues went up 50%. And, you know, and we can do that with the data visualizations. We, can, we have that visual element is that that sixth element that kind of brings it all together. And so those are, you know, those are six things that I look at in a data story. You know, there is a lot of confusion out there. I think a lot of people are confusing, maybe, you know, a dashboard with a data story, or a report with a data story. And, and that's, you know, I, I would say, no, those aren't the same if, if they don't have more of those those features that I just mentioned.
1: By the way, the book is chock full of amazing quotes. I loved, I loved all the quotes that you were able to source and, and add into the book. And for anybody that uh, wasn't listening carefully, the elements of the data story, that was data foundation, the main point explanatory focus, the linear sequence, the dramatic elements, and then the visual anchors. So you mentioned something in there and, and it was insight. And I don't think we really actually got a, a definition of that. So, you know, you, you talked about the the fact that, okay, you know, we can just say revenues are up 50%. Is that considered an insight or how, how can we make that into an insight? Like what needs to, what are the elements of an insight? How do we go from fact to insight?
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion around what an insight is and we use it kind of loosely in a lot of ways. And even I was using it loosely before I wrote this book. And I had a couple of readers who are reviewers who are reading my book and they're like, Brent, you talk a lot about insights, but you don't really define what an insight is. And, you know, I think that'll be important to other readers. And so I, I was like, oh, you're right, you know, I need to do that. So I went into, I went back to the first chapter. And as I was looking around at different definitions, I was really struggling because they they were just kind of really loose and, and not really that helpful until somebody pointed me to a quote, and now I've just spaced his name. Let me just pull it up here in my book. Hold on.
1: While you do that, just that we are also live on on LinkedIn. A lot of great comments coming in from people. There's about 25 people uh, listening in. People are loving the uh, loving the the insight and the the wisdom you're sharing with us here, Brent. Thank you. There's some great comments coming in from Christine and Meredith and Armand. Kate Strachan is also uh, joining us on the live stream as well.
0: I am looking for my. So basically, I felt bad. Now the name. Going to come to me. Basically, he said, an insight is an unexpected shift in the way we understand things. And that for me really resonated because I was like, that that is a really great way of understanding what an insight is. Because if you think about okay, so I go into the data, I have an understanding of our customers. And that means, wait a second, there's there's an opportunity here. We have a group of customers who are very interested in this. And then the other thing about an insight is is it's something we typically will want to share with others, right? So that's where the data story comes in because if I can just take action on that and I can address that that whole, you know, I can get the product to those customers on my own without anybody else, hey, you know, then no data story is needed because I can act on that myself. But in most cases when we're working with a business or working within an organization, we're going to need to get buy-in from other people we're going to need to get budget resources approval maybe you know get people to coordinate with us from other teams and so that's why the insight then needs to be communicated in an effective way so we can we can actually get the action to occur because it it can't just live with us we need to get other people on board
1: and i've definitely been there in those situations where i'm like all up in the data like i'm getting in there and i'm I find myself in 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 a data lab. so and you know when you're in that data labyrinth, there's a lot of like facts and there's a lot of things that look like insight. Is there like a distinction between just a old fashioned insight and like an actionable insight? how do we distinguish uh, the two?
0: yeah, so i what i what I do in in my fifth chapter, I go into that and I talk about how we can kind of really identify actual insights. And I borrow something from, I don't know if anybody is is familiar with Avinash Kaushik. He's, he's kind of, he works at Google, very smart guy. And he shared kind of like three things that we need, almost like a so what test for our insights. And so the first one is, why should you, why should your audience care? And then what should they, what should they do about it? And then the third thing is, what's the potential impact? And then what I did in my book is I, Kind of applied a formula that I had, looking at each of those. So, under why should your audience care? I think there's got to be two key things that are important for answering that question: is do we have a valuable insight? Is there is there some kind of uh, positive return or perceived return that we can get from our insight? Is that clear? And then is it relevant? You know, obviously, if I'm I'm coming to an audience with something they're not even thinking about or not even focused on, there's probably going to be less interested in acting on that so i want to i want to have you know why should your audience care valuable and and uh, relevant and then what should they do about it and in there we need to get into what we need to be practical and specific right and so again yeah like i could i could tell the company you know if if you only spend you know 300 million dollars you know we can generate you know Maybe that's not practical for the business, you know, especially if the revenues are much lower than that. So we have to, you know, we have to kind of look at the solution. What's fee- what's feasible? What's realistic? If we have a more feasible and realistic solution or, or an insight that potentially the business could go after, then that's going to be more actionable than one that feels a little bit far off or we're not ready to kind of pursue that that insight. And then very specific, you know, the more specific we can get on okay, so here we have this insight, what do we do about it? And then if we can articulate specifically the steps or the actions that we need to take, again, that's going to make that insight more actionable than an insight that doesn't have a lot of specificity around it. And then when we get into what's the potential business impact, I bring up two key points here, we want to make it as concrete as possible. So usually that means quantifying it, monetizing it, putting it in some dollar figure if that's if that's appropriate to really, you know, kind of shine a light on this. Like this is a you know quarter million dollar opportunity for our our team. You know, if we can we can seize this. And then the the next thing is contextualizing the, the opportunity as much as possible. So if we can say, you know, hey, you know, we I think we can generate this many leads. And oh and by the way, you know, last year we did a similar initiative and we were able to generate X amount of leads. And so, you know, here we are, it's completely feasible, you know, and just by contextualizing our recommendations, uh, contextualizing what we're talking about, it helps people. It it makes the insight more, more, makes people more at ease and more comfortable with, with the insight when it, when it's contextualized. So those are all the factors that I obviously, in the the book, I get into it more detail. but, you know, actionable insights. It's great if we have insights, but the more actionable, we can make them obviously We have a higher likelihood of driving value.
1: And the book, for those that do not know yet, it is Effective Data Storytelling by Wiley Publications, an excellent, excellent book. I highly recommend you guys checking it out. So does all data need a story?
0: Yeah, no. And and that may be one of the things that people come to me and say, well, you know, Brent, do I need to turn everything into a data story? And and that's where I say, no, no. Like I'm trying to be pragmatic with my data storytelling. I want to be as pragmatic and practical as possible because, honestly, you know it can take some effort to create a data, a data story. You know it goes above and beyond just you know slapping a, a couple of uh, charts in a, in a in a in a in some slides and then sending it on to your manager and hoping for the best. No, we're crafting this. We're honing all of the visuals. We're you know building a narrative structure around this. And that can take some effort. And so I have in the book, I talk about, I have this, there's a story zone. And so basically, it's a typical kind of four by four quadrant analysis. And so the, the two axes that I have, one axis is, is just the value of the insight. Is it a low value insight? Or is it a high value? And so that one, obviously, we're going to want to focus on high to medium you know, value insights. We we don't want to invest a lot of time in low value insights. So we wouldn't we wouldn't tell a data story or at least we wouldn't invest as much time in a data story for a low value insight and on the other axis i talk about the type of insight and how easy or hard it is for the audience to accept or understand the insight and i'll give you some examples of maybe an insight that's hard to understand or hard to process. It could be complex data where it's a very intricate kind of analysis we've done, and maybe the data is unfamiliar to the audience. And so in those situations, we would want to invest extra time to tell the data story. Often when we have information that is counterintuitive, maybe it's bad information, like not bad information, but Hey, that program that you rolled out for the last six months—I've analyzed it, and it was not as successful as we'd hoped. And so, whenever we have a situation where maybe the information is 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 unfamiliar, it's it's you know information that's counterintuitive, information that's hard for the audience to receive because maybe they you know they're invested in, in success and in hearing that things didn't go as well as they could have. You know, it's going to be bad news and. But that's when a data story is required. When we have information that is pleasant, when it's very straightforward or not counterintuitive, you know. And, it, and if it's if it's even if it's high value, do we need to invest as much time? You know, because going to the team and saying, "Hey, that new product you launched, the product launch was a success, yay!" You know, it it really doesn't require much of a story because people are already on board. It's when people aren't on board that that's when you need to tell a data story, and that's so basically the the hard insights to process and understand, and if they're medium to high value, that's the story zone where I really feel like storytelling is is needed. Now you could use storytelling outside of those zones, but but then that's you know that's where if you have the time and and you're you feel like it would add some value, then you can do it, but it's not required.
1: Book it's that. Uh... It's, it's the 4D framework. Oh, yeah. Uh, talk, talk to us about that. And where does that kind of fit into the, the data story kind of process? If, if
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So 4D, I've actually heard some other people use 4D and other, but my 4D is really about the audience. Okay. So I'd say there's four main, main dimensions that we need to think about when we're looking at an analysis, whether we're looking at a dashboard or in this case, with data storytelling, and now obviously, it kind of starts with the analysis because if we're already off track when we begin our analysis, then we're not going to have what we need for a data story. So the four Ds: the first dimension is the problem, and the problem is really important to understand because the only way, if we don't understand the problem of the audience, then it's going to be very hard for us to really get focused on finding potential causes or really getting into what's going on for that audience that they care about you know and if if I had an example of, of a marketing team where they're struggling with generating leads, you know I'd, I'd want to dig into what are the problems and they might say, well we're our biggest problem is we're just we're getting a lot of complaints from our sales team that we're just not generating enough leads for them. And so you know we look at our our sales leads and it's you know they've been going down over the last six quarters or six six months. And so that's the problem. And then, and then the next dimension is okay. Well, if that's the problem, and that's where you are today, where do you want to get? What's your future state look like? What is what is the outcome you want to drive? You know, are you maybe you're already driving towards that outcome? And so this marketing team might say, well, we want to double the number of leads that we're providing to our sales team. Okay, great. Now I know, you know, how far, you know, where are you right now on that goal? Wow, we haven't really achieved. Okay. So you got a lot of work to do. Or, or no, we're we've, you know, we've made some changes and we're halfway there to our goal. We just need to get the last, you know, and, and so that's kind of establishing kind of how far they've come, where they need to get to. And, and so that's good. Now we got these two two perspectives on the audience. The next one is the actions. And, and so the actions are the activities or strategies that they're using to move from the their current state to the future state. And, and, and this is important for us to understand as we, as we go into the data and as we do our analysis, because obviously we're going to have data on all kinds of things. But if we know that they're investing time and effort, resources on certain activities and actions, we can then target those for our analysis. We, those are the areas where we dig in. And those are going to be areas that the audience is going to care about because what, you know, they're spending money on it. They're, they've got people allocated in, in doing it. And if we're doing our analysis to understand how successful or or potential opportunities in those areas, you know, and so the marketing example, maybe they're, you know, they're looking at at shifting a lot of their offline kind of activities to online virtual, you know, and so we could do some analysis around how those initial virtual campaigns are going maybe they're they're experimenting with some new agencies to kind of roll out some new creative or something like that to, you know to kind of generate some more leads so okay let's let's start analyzing how those different campaigns are going or those agencies how are they doing you know and so we're very targeted on what what's going to be top of mind and important to the audience and then the last dimension that we look at is the measures and so those are the KPIs those are the you know at the end of the day what are the metrics that this audience cares about? And maybe, you know, number of leads they're generating, cost per lead, conversion rate on their campaigns. Those are the things that we are going to then use to evaluate the actions, understand the outcome that they're driving towards. And, and, and I kind of look at this as a GPS, you know, like, you know, we talk, I talk about, you know, the data being a labyrinth, you know, and, and we can easily get lost in that labyrinth if we don't have, kind of like a plan, or if we don't have kind of some guidance to kind of guide us through the data. And 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 so the, you know, the four, I look at the 4D that I just outlined, this framework is very helpful to keep us centered and focused on going into that labyrinth and coming out with, with valuable insights that are going to help the business rather than, you know, we can go into that labyrinth and then, oh, look, squirrel, 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 you know, and we start Going and then we come out of there, you know, a little bit like where did why did we go in originally? You know, what were we trying to find? Did we, you know, without that kind of mooring or that kind of got concentrated focus on what's important to the audience? I think that's where we can, you know, waste cycles on things that don't really matter to the to the company or to the audience that we're trying to
1: help. And so, for just to recap, the 4D framework—that's looking at the problem, the outcome, the actions, and the measures. Brent goes into great detail on that framework in his book, Effective Data Storytelling, which again I highly recommend you guys check out. So sometimes you might have like an awesome story put together. You got your presentation, you got your visuals, and you just be ready to 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 go in and let's share these insights but you might have an audience member that's a key audience member and they just want the facts. How do we, how do we handle that situation?
0: Yeah. So I, I have a whole framework that I share in in, in the narrative chapter where I go into how you set up a data story. And a lot of people are like, Oh, that's great, Brett. I love it. But what happens is when I'm presenting to executives, they're really kind of conditioned to kind of just expect a summary and just the numbers and and really, you know it would be kind of a shock to them to kind of get a story. and so maybe before I get into my strategy around working with the I, I need to kind of back up and explain my my narrative kind of approach here because I think that'll give context before I get into the uh, hack that I use in those situations so if you're if you're telling a data story there there really should be a structure to it. and when I was Researching data storytelling, a lot of people would say, "Well, a story has a beginning, middle, and end." And I found, and that actually comes from Aristotle. You know, it's based on—I mean, he didn't say it that way—but people took his his analysis of Greek tragedies and applied it that, that every story has a beginning, middle, and end. But I found that kind of lacking. I didn't really find that it was that helpful for me because you you could point to a a report and say, "Oh, it has a beginning, middle, and end. It's a story." Mm, no, it's not a story. So that that model didn't really work for me. And so I kept looking and then I came across a guy. He was a German playwright from the 1800s by the name of Gustav Freytag. And he had this, he he basically looked at Shakespearean plays. He looked at the Greek tragedies like Aristotle did. And he kind of, he analyzed them for basically, he found that they all had a story arc, which has been called Freytag's Pyramid. But basically I took his model and I applied it to data storytelling. And so I, I kind of see some key, key things in a, in a storytelling arc for, for data stories. And the first thing is establishing the setting, right? So when we're going into, we're going to talk about, so let's say call center data, and we're, we're going to establish, here are the typical you know, response times, the typical kind of behaviors we see from customers. And we're establishing, you know, giving the audience some context into what we're going to get into. And then there's a hook. And the hook is really just a, an observation. An observation, an, an interesting observation we've made in the data that, oh my gosh, something happened on this date when people, you know, I'm making this up on the fly, they're calling about a particular product. We saw that the response times went up significantly. Oh, okay. So now we've got something that's going to draw the audience in. We've established the, the setting. We've got this hook where something, you know, just this the response times went way up and that's costing us money, Right. And so then what we do is we start unpacking that. So we start to do some analysis. Okay, what's going on here? What's causing this? And then we we build up to an aha moment, which maybe if we don't address this problem for this reason, this reason, this reason, we're going to be, you, you know, we're going to have, we're going to double our call center costs, you know, and, and over the next two quarters or something, you know, whatever. I'm, again, I'm making this up. So now we're like, oh, my gosh, this is this is going to get more and more serious. It's going to cost us more and more money. And then the last step, so that's our climax, right? That's our aha moment. And we're basically connecting our hook with, you know, if, if there's one or two insights, or maybe there's 10 insights or observations we need to make to get up to our big aha moment, that's fine. But then we're not done. Once we've got our, our aha moment, we then need to say, okay, how are we going to, address this problem. You know, we we've, we've identified that this is a serious problem that if we don't address it's going to cost us x amount of dollars. What can we do? You know, and that's where our job as the analyst or, or as the manager, you know, we go in and do some more analysis to kind of say, okay, here's here are the three options. We can do this, this and this and that's option A. We can do this, this and this and that's option B and then option C. And we recommend option A because it's the biggest impact for the least amount of cost. And what we've done is we've taken all of our findings and our analysis and packaged it into something that mimics a typical story. Now, going back to your original question, is what do I do when I can't tell that full story? You know, where I have the setting, the hook, and the rising insights leading up to my my big aha moment and then, you know, the next step and solution. What do I do in that situation? Well, I kind of modified it and, and said, what you want to do is you want to. You want a data trailer. I call it a data trailer. So think of it like a movie trailer, but it's like the worst movie trailer in the world because it actually gives away the climax of the story of the movie. And, and basically what I do is that you know, if there's these four stages of a data story, I say, what you're going to want to do is you want to take the hook and you want to take the aha moment and maybe a little bit of setting to set up the hook. And that's what you put into your data trailer. And so you say, hey, you know, we we noticed the patterns on response times for this. We saw this massive spike. And oh, and by the way, if we don't address this in in two quarters, um, it's going to cost us X amount of dollars. That's the data trailer. Okay. So we've we've kind of crammed it down to that. And then at that point, what we're seeking to do is that manager may then say, tell me more. Like, I'm curious. How did you get to the X amount of dollars? or, Or how do you, you know, what's going on with that? Now you have permission to tell them the rest of the data story. So, And that could go one of two ways. They could say, tell me more. And then you, you get into actual storytelling or it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not worried about that. Okay. All right. Then I'm not worried about it either then. And I don't need to tell a data story and, and I'm not wasting their time and I'm not wasting my time. So I see that data trailer as the solution to kind of modifying our approach, but hopefully encouraging you know it's it's like we're enticing people to hear the rest of the story and and that's what we can do in those situations
1: nicely with with a question that 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 I had prepared so the question coming in is from from Christine she wants to know can the story take away from the actual science in the problem-solving process. And my question was going to be, what's the difference between a data story and a data forgery? So I'm wondering if, yeah. that, if there might be a way to answer both of those there.
0: Yeah, no, totally. So I think one of the things, sometimes when people look at, like we see maybe a presentation, it's got a bunch of data in it and visuals, and then we say, oh, that's a data story. And then I I say, have we really told a data story? And, and I call those data forgeries. And, and so... If I outline the process that we need to take with a true data story, it should start with the data, right? We're starting with the data. We're doing some analysis. Maybe we have a hypothesis that we're testing. We validate that hypothesis. And then we then we have our insight that we want to share. And then the next step is to then, you know, visualize the data, build the build the, the visuals that support our data story. And then they're tailored to the audience. So that's kind of how a data story should come together. Now there's three forgeries that I talk about in my book. So the first one is everything follows the right process. We start with the data, we do some kind of analysis, we find an insight, and then what happens is rather than tailoring our deliverable to the audience, we just kind of share exactly what we what, what communicated to us, we assume will also communicate to the audience. We make no edits. And I call that the data cut. Uh, kind of like a director's cut of a movie, right? Every director thinks, oh, I, you know, this is how the movie should be seen. But often what I've seen is when I watch the theatrical version, I'm like, oh man, that's amazing. And then I, I go, I want to see more. I love this movie so much. And then I want to see the director's cut. And then I go and watch the director's cut. And I'm like, oh, that, that scene was kind of lame. I don't know where that was going. I can see why the editor cut you know, made the cuts that they did. And the same thing can happen to us, especially analytics professionals. We assume, you know, it's kind of like the curse of knowledge where we assume that people can, will embrace the data and consume it the same way that we do. And often that's not the case. We need to edit it. We need to provide, you know, context. We need to hold their hand through the data. And so that that last, that second step of of actually editing ourselves is really important. So that's the data cut. Now, the one that will will be relevant to the question is the next one, where basically what happens is it start. And this is usually a situation with the business side saying, "Hey, I need to show that my marketing campaign was successful." And so we start with the story. You know, in this case, it's not a hypothesis. It's actually no. I need to show that my campaign was successful, and so you need to go find me data or help me find data that that shows that my campaign was successful and and then what happens is and i call this one that well i won't get to what it's called yet but basically what happens is we then select data from the data right we select data points that that support that the campaign was successful and we either inadvertently or on purpose ignore data that shows maybe some problems with the campaign and and then we you know we visualize it all we tailor it to the audience so everything looks really nice but the basic, you know, we're basically just sprinkling in some data to support our argument or our agenda that we have. And that, that kind of speaks to the question that that's the danger when we start with the story and then we're trying to mold the data to the point we're trying to make, or, you know, that's less effective. Now you can have a hypothesis, you can have a hunch, you can test that, but as long as you remain open to maybe the data is saying something different, and then you're gonna. I can't tell the story I want to tell because that's actually not accurate, you know. And and that's the danger, you know. Whenever we get into the scenario where we have to kind of sh- prove something, we have to show something, then we will, you know, select the data that you know. And then we're not. In, in my mind, that's not a true data story. And then the the third data forgery is one where we, you know, typically we look at some really pretty visualizations that have been created, you know, we're like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And then we start to scratch at it and we see, wait a second, what is the point of this? Like, there is no insight. There is no main takeaway. It's almost like the creator of the visualization is hoping that somebody will find something of interest or of note. And and, and that's, I call that the data decoration. You know, we, we basically, and I don't think I gave the name to the, the second one. The second one, I call it data cameo. Kind of like again a movie reference where the data is just inserted as a cameo, but it's not really driving the story. And then this third one is the data decoration. You know, the the visualizations look pretty, but there it's kind of hollow. There is no main takeaway. There is no main insight um, driving that that data story. So that again is uh, data forgery. So basically, if we look at it, the three elements: data element. The, the narrative element and then the the narr- the narr- narrative, the visual and the, and the data, so the the data cut is a, is a data problem you know where we haven't edited the data the 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 second one, the data cameo is kind of a narrative problem where the narrative is becomes overbearing, and then the third one is the visual problem where the visuals become too dominant and we haven't really put a lot of effort into the real a- an insight behind it. so that was a long answer. <laughs>
1: Also talk about in your book, cognitive biases, logical fallacies. I just real quickly, what are these and why are they important to watch out for? Why should we keep an eye out for these things?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as I was mentioning before, it's kind of like it's on us as the analyst and as the storyteller to make sure that we're not tripping up our own data story. You know, our cognitive biases are not getting in the way of us telling our data stories effectively. You know, if we come into it where we're either, you know, in a couple of examples that I use in the book, and and there's the the one of the of the sharp. No, no, I I do have sharp shooter, but it's the uh, survivorship bias, and that's with Abraham Walt. and he was, you know, probably pretty everybody probably heard of it, but basically to summarize real quick, the the. American Air Force is basically losing a number of its bombers and its crews. They're getting shot down, and so they were wondering if they should put more armor in certain places. And they were looking at the the planes that were coming back, and they were doing an analysis of where the bullet holes were. And they found there were certain concentrated areas where they're getting more damage. And so they went to Abraham Wald, who was a, a team of ma- he was on a team of mathematicians and statisticians during World War II, and 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 they basically said. What is, you know, can you do an analysis of our data and tell us, you know, are we making the right decision here that we want to put the, the armor plating in these places where the bullet holes are? And then he actually came back to them and shocked them. And he said, no, you should absolutely not put the, the armor in those places. And, and, and he introduced this concept of survivorship bias. They were looking at the planes that were returning safely. So it didn't really matter how many shots they you know, taken. Those were two non-essential parts of the plane, and they survived. He was saying, we really need to understand what was shooting down. Like, where were the planes that were shot down? Where did they take damage? And so it was almost like the inverse. We need to look at the places where these surviving planes didn't receive a lot of damage, because we know that if they did on the engines or the back of the fuselage or in the cockpit, those are the places that are probably causing these other planes to go down. And, and the reason why these ones survived is because they didn't take damage there. And so that that really kind of like, oh, you know, and, and that was a bias that they had, the, the uh, American Air Force that, that Abraham Wald had to kind of wake them up to. And so similarly, there's all kinds, you know, I think in Wikipedia, there's like 180 different cognitive biases that we can fall victim to. And I was actually teaching my class about cognitive biases, and we were going through a bunch of them, you know, last class and, and it's eye-opening to realize, you know, how much our brain can, you know, can, can deceive us. And so as analysts, as we analyze our data, as we go to build data stories, we need to be cognizant of where we can trip ourselves up so that we don't, you know, a cognitive bias, you know, kind of blinds us to a perspective on our data. And we build this beautiful data story And then somebody's like, well, what about this? I mean, it looks like you kind of ignored that. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I was so, you know, the the cognitive bias took over and I, I went down a path that, that kind of led me astray. So that's, I think that's important. And that, again, like what I said earlier is, is that's hard to train out of us. And so it takes discipline. It takes, you know, maybe sharing our ideas with other people and sharing our work to get, you know, feedback. And maybe even, you know, acknowledging what our biases are before we start doing any analysis or as we're building our data story, you know, how can I strive to be more objective? It's 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 hard to completely, you know, be objective, but, you know, we can at least strive to be.
1: And you in, in the book, Effective Data Storytelling, great book, y'all should get it. You talk about a number of different cognitive biases. I'm wondering if there's one that's, you know, you see a lot of data professionals kind of you know, commit most frequently. You talked about survivorship bias, but is there one that you know you've seen happen a lot recently, uh, or one that you just see happening over and over?
0: I mean, the one that happens a lot is this confirmation bias, right? So we we're just we already have a viewpoint, we already kind of know what we feel, and I've seen that with you know, as even as I've done analysis, I'm like, oh yeah, this this campaign's gonna this campaign's you know would have failed or this. This marketing channel is, you know, I have a marketing analytics background, so that's why I have a lot of marketing examples. But, you know, this marketing channel is garbage, you know, it never works. And, and so all of a sudden, I'm going to be analyzing that with that chip on my shoulder, you know, where I'm going to be like, yeah, I, I, it's almost like I'm not going to be, I'm going to be looking for ways in which that marketing channel has failed. I'm going to be looking for ways in which it's a terrible, you know, investment for, for marketing dollars. And and that's what you've got to be careful of, I think, because I think, I think the, the thing about analysts and data scientists, we're all very smart people. You know, we have opinions, we have perspectives, and that's the dangerous part that we're going to go into, you know, whatever analysis is, and we're already going to have an opinion on something. And then we're going to inadvertently potentially support or confirm our bias, you know, that, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew that was going to fail, or I knew that that was the right thing to do. And, you know, and we'll, we'll trip ourselves up. And and so I think, I think I would say confirmation bias and that's, that's also for also our audience as well. They're going to have confirmation bias as well. So that's, that's a very common one that, that people run into all the time.
1: Let's have one uh, final formal question before we jump into a really quick random round. And it is this, it's 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for?
0: Oh boy. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I could be like Aristotle, you know, like he was from like 2,300 years ago and here we are, we're still using some of his principles. I mean, that's, that's crazy to think, you know, somebody lived that long ago and we're still, you know, leveraging his, his work. Hey, if, if there's some value at, you know, out of effective data storytelling or any of my other future work that, that, you know, resonates with people in the future, you know, I, I look to people like Hans Rosling and others, you know, even though Hans Rosling has passed, you know his his work will always be remembered as as a you know a very amazing data storyteller. And so, you know, I, I hope that you know maybe in the future that people remember me as I you know I I'm not going to put any shade on Hans Ro- or even compare myself to Hans Rosling, but you know, like hopefully if I'm I'm sharing insights or ideas that that are helpful to people and help them to become. Uh, better data storytellers and tell really powerful data stories, that's great. That's that's all I can ask for.
1: Right, I know you're well on your way there because this book is amazing. I really, really enjoyed it. I've learned a tremendous amount by going through uh, the book. And just for for the audience, Hans Rosling, if I recall correctly, you can find a video of him on YouTube where he's talking about population size and yeah. these uh, bubbles growing and and stuff like that. It's really fascinating to watch, really good way uh, a good way to, for you to see data storytelling like in action. Right. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into the random round. First question is, what are you currently reading?
0: I am reading a bunch of books. Uh, one I'm reading is actually pretty good. It's um, Learning to See Data. Mm. Uh, and it's by Ben Jones of dataliteracy.com. Ben's a really smart guy. But yeah, I've, I've enjoyed his book. I've, I'm about two thirds through it, but it's good. Yeah, enjoyed it.
1: What song do you currently have on repeat?
0: I, I was thinking of that. I think I've, I've been on Spotify. It keeps giving me songs by Beck
1: and his <laughs>
0: Hyperspace album, which I hadn't really got exposed to before this year. But it's been, it's been repeating a lot of his songs from that album. So...
1: Beck is uh, Beck's cool man. He's he's one of those people who is always changing up his style, not afraid yeah. to you know go back down the mountain and take a different path, just to, yeah. know, reinvent himself. I really admire his chameleon like nature. Beck is awesome. We are going to go to a random question generator. This will be a lot of fun here. First <laughs> random question we got for you here, Brent is: If you lost all of your possessions but one, what would you want it to be?
0: I would want to keep my Incredible Hulk 181. It's a comic book that's the first appearance of Wolverine, and I got it when I was a, a teenager. And yeah, that that would be my one possession I'd want to keep.
1: What's your worst habit?
0: I do not get enough sleep. I I, I need to get more sleep.
1: What's your favorite candy?
0: Oh, I like. Hard candy. I like anise. So it's like a a Greek hard candy. Other chocolate bars, I would go with, I'd probably go with uh, any dark chocolate. Dark chocolate. It's a big thing for me.
1: What's one of your favorite comfort foods?
0: Greek food. I love Greek food. So like a a Greek uh, chicken souvlaki.
1: Yeah. Mm, Love it. Nice. Nice. We'll do one more from here. What's something you learned in the last week?
0: Yeah, actually, that's that's something. As I was preparing my talk for DataCated, Kate's uh, conference is happening next week. I was I'm preparing a talk, and I, I talk about the difference between data telling and data storytelling. And it was interesting to kind of you know put pen to paper and really think through the differences between what we may perceive as data telling and data storytelling,
1: right? How can people connect with you? Where can they find you online?
0: Yeah, a couple of places. So, effectivedatastorytelling.com, that's my website for my book. You can reach me there if you want to contact me. I'm going to be adding a bunch of services, pages, and stuff. I'm still working with my designer on that. It should be happening next week or so. And then the other best way would be LinkedIn. You know, I'm on LinkedIn, Brent Dykes. Just connect with me. If you're passionate about data storytelling, I'd love to connect with, with you. Or if you'd like to get passionate about data storytelling, then definitely let's connect because I can I can I'll be, you know, I'm constantly sharing content and ideas through my LinkedIn channel. So
1: yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing your presentation at the dedicated conference, which is happening on Tuesday, October 5th. You and I will be presenting on the same day. I'm really looking forward to that. So, you know, if you guys are listening live here on LinkedIn, do connect with Brent. I will be sure to uh, add his I'll, I'll tag you in in the post we had such good positive feedback from from the viewers brent thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be on the show with me today I appreciate having you here
0: thanks harpreet appreciate it